0: welcome to martyr she wrote i'm anna clark miller and this is a podcast on religious trauma so consider this your trigger warning let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell hey martyrs how was your thanksgiving mine was great Today, I want us to focus on some diverse forms of church, uh, specifically trauma-informed churches that are really taking into account the reality of religious trauma. And so today, I'm going to be talking to Reverend Durrell Watkins, who is the head pastor at the Sunshine Cathedral. Durrell, thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about what you do.
1: Well, I'm the senior minister of the Sunshine Cathedral in Fort Lauderdale, and uh, we have a global fellowship, which means, yeah, of course, we're a local congregation, but we have people who participate at various levels really all over the world. And there are a lot of, and thank God, there are a lot of affirming congregations in the world, Jewish and Christian, but uh, we're more than that. We, we were actually identified as a queer church. That doesn't mean every person in our church identifies as queer, but they know that they are a member of a queer identified church. And so that means not only do we affirm the dignity and the sacred value of LGBTQ plus people, but also I'm a queer theologian. I am a queer Bible scholar. Everything we do is through a queer hermeneutic. And so we queer the scriptures. We deal with religion from the margins. So you don't have to be LGBTQ+, plus, you don't have to be pansexual or asexual or bisexual or gay or lesbian or questioning to be part of our church. But everything you hear is going to be through a queer lens, through queer scholarship. And so that's what makes us unique. There are a lot of affirming churches, and I'm so glad. But we're actually a step beyond. We are actually a queer church. And, and so that sort of sets us apart, not in a better or worse way, it's just a different identity.
0: Well, and I love the idea of taking a group that has typically been in the minority and underrepresented. And now you've got church that is for you by you, you know, (laughs) it is very empowering.
1: Absolutely. And it's a very pluralistic church. I mean, you have Jewish members, we have Muslim members, we have agnostic members, it is firmly rooted in the Christian tradition. But that's just sort of a jumping off point. Like we don't, we're a non-doctrinal church. We are culturally Christian. We say that. We are culturally Christian, but spiritually unlimited. So most of us identify as Christian, but you don't have to. If you if you like what's going on and you want to be part of us, then you are. <laughs> it's just that simple.
0: So do you get feedback from other churches or from people coming from more traditional churches saying, oh, well, this is, you know, your message is too
1: diluted? Uh, diluted is not a word that I hear. Uh, wrong. Wrong is the word I hear. Uh, <laughs> okay. Heretical is the word I hear. <laughs> Sinful. You know, oh, no. a, lot of a, a lot of disparaging things. Uh, Deluded would be a nicer criticism, actually, than what we use against. <laughs> uh, be- well, because Jesus is our primary faith symbol. But we also understand that Jesus uh, was Jewish and that the first followers of Jesus were Jewish, but also operating in the context of the pagan Roman Empire and that Christianity has evolved pretty early on, by from the second century on, into a, a syncretic hybrid sort of thing of Judaism and paganism. And uh, so we just keep that pluralism going. Like why limit it to Greek and Egyptian and Roman paganism and Judaism? Why not include Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and, and the rest of it? So we love us some Jesus, and uh, we, we we understand that we are culturally Christian, and we come out of a Christian context, but that's not a gatekeeping situation for us. Uh, a few years ago, I did an Easter baptism for a Muslim. And he said, I want to be a baptized member of this church, but I don't want to stop being Muslim. And I said, done. Easy enough, just that. I don't know why you want to be baptized, but it's none of my business. You want to? So you are now, a, you don't have to become Christian. You are now a baptized Muslim. And he's a faithful member to this day <laughs> of our church.
0: That's awesome.
1: And he will always, you know, like in conversations, he'll talk about the Holy Book. And he is talking about the Quran. I am woefully ignorant of the Quran, so I don't preach in the Quran. which is why when he talks about it, I listen. I'm like, oh, that's very fascinating. So we're it's, it's a very pluralistic. It's a Christian church, but very pluralistic. Because if we're going to say we are totally affirming and we celebrate LGBTQ plus lives, we believe that the LGBTQ plus community is part of the rainbow diversity, the divine rainbow diversity of life. We can't cut it off there. Hmm. And if we are going to represent those people who have been marginalized, the LGBTQ community, I'm, I'm a gay and non-binary person. So we, we also have to be considerate of all people who have been marginalized. So we're very concerned with refugees. We're very concerned with women's bodily autonomy. We're very concerned with anybody who has been marginalized because we know what that's like. So we come from our particular social location. But we try to be very mindful of other social locations that have been marginalized.
0: Yeah. So something that comes up a lot in religious trauma is this idea of high control religious groups, and it sounds like you are directly undermining that. Where you're you're trying not to be high control. It's open and free. Do you think though that you still hold on to any sort of like hardline rules of like if you're going to be in our church, these are the things that you have to abide by?
1: Um, not doctrinally. OK, like you could be an atheist and I'll make you a deacon. I don't care. But ethically, yes. Like, OK, things have to be uh, things have to be mutual, non-abusive relationships have to be uh, like an adult can only be in a relationship with an adult. If you're in a relationship, you can't you know deprive your partner of access to the outside world. You can't hit them. I mean, you know, so. Right. So there are some ethical guidelines, but that has really not much to do be with being a church, but just trying to be good people. You can't hurt people. So there's that like you can't be abusive. Right. And there are some things that are innately abusive. Like if you if you have more power than the other person does, then that is innately abusive, which is why a therapist can't date a client, why an employer usually can't date an employee. So yeah, abuse, I guess it's the, anything that's abusive, anything where you have power over someone, This is why adults can't really be with people who aren't adults because they have a different power dynamic. And so, yeah, it's about uh, how you treat people, but you can't have power over someone and you can't be abusive towards someone. That would be the line in the sand, I guess.
0: Okay. Yeah. No exploitation. That sounds like a a reasonable policy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hate to be prudish, but yeah, that is our line. <laughs> yeah, That is our line in the sand, can't be me.
0: <laughs> so that brings up a, an interesting question. I actually have a, a deconstruction group and something we've been talking about lately is this notion of how do you know what is ethical if you are not starting from the same framework? And so since you are have people represented in your group that are of all different sort of theological or non-theological backgrounds. Are there disagreements in terms of what ethics demands?
1: Well, it is a conversation. Uh, there is an older generation that had to navigate different realities. And so while demanding certain standards of them, we also need to be not super judgmental of where they come from. Uh, So when when just existing was criminal, the activity itself was criminal in their day. And so it just any two people that could find warmth and safety together, well, that's a different life. And so we have to understand that, where, where they come from. But then they have to understand the world has changed. And we now know things we didn't know. Right. And uh, I mean, just like the whole Me Too thing. Like once we know more, we have to do better. So I don't want to be super judgmental of where you come from, but that doesn't mean that you get to stay there.
0: Yeah, I love that response. So, have you worked with religious trauma
1: every day?
0: Yeah. How do you see that most often?
1: Um, sometimes it's just normal, like almost anyone would see it, like women who were told they couldn't be priests or deacons, or you know, whatever, or women that were told that they had to stay with an abusive husband because divorce was just terrible, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Are women who are told that no matter the circumstances, no matter their health situation, and even those qualifiers, it's not a, like even that there are any qualifiers that they just can't make their own reproductive choices. Right. And so there's that. And surely almost any moderate to progressive pastor has to deal with that. Just the sexism and misogyny that people suffer from. But then in addition to that, there are just some real horror stories of queer people who have survived. Just you wouldn't, they shouldn't have to. decide. people who, were rejected by their families because of their religion and then they have to do survival sex work and then of course as difficult and dangerous as that may be there are there are situations within that that are even more traumatizing than others and then people are judged because there's then there's classism oh you're a street person uh, and then there's elitism and and moralism oh you're you're a sex worker and so people who have been judged and downgraded and dehumanized on multiple levels I mean, one trauma sometimes leads to another. Yeah, and then we have the the disadvantage of I'm not a clinician. Like I try, I want to love people in the wholeness. I want to provide a safe place for them, but then their personal psychological demons. I've got to refer that, and so one. You, you got to provide a safe place and an encouraging place and an affirming place, but then also do networking because there are just things people need that I'm not qualified to do. Yeah, and so it's a it's a big job to provide a certain kind of environment to provide you know affirmation and. But then also referrals and referrals that they will trust and appropriate referrals. I mean, it's a it's a bigger job than you might think.
0: Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, I've I've been on the church staff side of this equation Mm -hmm. and I've been on the therapist side of it. And I think, you know, it really does take a level of wisdom to know what you don't know and to, to know when it's time to refer to somebody else because they have an expertise that you don't.
1: Yeah. And a lot of people, and God bless them, they do have both a master of divinity and a master of social work. It's it's a dual program. It usually takes about five years for it's it's five years worth of education they squeeze into four years. <laughs> and uh, but that's not me. I didn't do that. I don't have an MSW, so I gotta find people who are qualified for that, but who are also trans competent and or queer competent, and that understand the the complexities that religion play into that. Yes. There, there's also. There's also a certification for pastoral counselors. Well, I have to give them two or three looks to make sure that they are therapeutic clinicians who just happen to be in a church or synagogue environment and not someone who thinks that if I just pose the right kind of doctrine, the doctrine will fix it. Well, doctrine is not therapeutic. It's not clinical. Yeah. And usually the the, the certified pastoral counselors do understand that and certified chaplains do understand it. But there's something else called Christian counselors that is a different thing. And I'm not a fan of that.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I used to say that that there are three groups of words that should never be used together. Prayer, warrior, Bible, college, and Christian counselor. (laughs) (laughs) Those
0: Prayer, warrior. I love that. Prayer,
1: warrior, Bible, college, and Christian counselor. Those are just wrong couplings. That's my prejudice. That's not, don't. Don't put that in a pamphlet, but that is what I think.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I fully agree with you because, you know, I went to a Bible college.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. It is, Rude
0: no, already. <laughs> no, no, no. You don't need to worry. I think it's so ironic to be teaching liberal arts through an exclusively religious lens. Like, of course, you're going to miss out on some really important critical thinking skills. <laughs> So you you mentioned you've worked with a lot of survivors of religious trauma. Have conversion therapy practices been something that you've encountered a lot of?
1: Oh, including electric shock therapy Ugh. and weird demon. Like there's this one woman, God love her. She, uh, and of course I'll mention no names, but yeah. And she's now, I guess, retired. And uh, she was from, I guess I could say a Pentecostal background. But when she was young, they honestly forced her. I I guess she was young enough to not know she could refuse. And they just forced her into these prayer environments where people were very invasive of her personal space. And they meant well, but they were tragically misinformed. And so they would like lay hands on her and push her and hold her and, and scream at her for these demons to come out. Now, never mind the just tragic superstition of that. I mean, never mind the damage they've done to themselves even buying into that mess. But now they've got a real- life victim yeah who just is hearing people hold her and scream at her and tell her terrible things and she got into self-harm and all kinds of things and she has carried this her whole life and she's gotten treatment thank God she has good periods she's in a safe environment she's in a solid relationship she's in therapeutic care but like the damage was so much it's been decades and even though she's you know very mature her mother's still alive and her mother still sort of torments her with that rhetoric. Now, her mother's in her 90s. She's not a physically dangerous person. But just a word can trigger those terrifying memories. Yeah. And this is a functional, adult, mature person in the world. But her whole life has been marred by this outrageously abusive, cultic-really experience. All because this is one of those people who couldn't hide. She was obviously different. And that she has given religion another chance, that I even know this woman is a miracle. Because I think if I had that exact same experience, I'd be like, those people are evil and I want to not be on the same side of the street as as them. So, I mean, God bless her that she even gave. And religion is a social institution. And I think this is why people sometimes will give it a second or third chance. Just like education can be terrible and the economy can be terrible and politics can be terrible and your family can be terrible. Religion can be terrible. These social institutions can be terrible. But When they work, they can also be so beautiful. And I think people get that and they're just looking. My family was terrible, but maybe I can have a better family. Religion was terrible, but maybe I can have a better experience. Uh, You know, government was terrible, but maybe there's a better kind of government in the world. And so I'm glad she gave it a chance. I'm glad she got a better experience of it. But this woman will probably go to her grave never completely free of the trauma she suffered. Mm. For what? Because these people just decided that gay is bad?
0: Yeah. It definitely sounds like you have a very trauma informed way of being a church leader, which I think is so needed. Have you encountered situations where even with the best intentions, someone came and was like, "Hey, that was that was traumatic for me or that practice was triggering?"
1: There is a story in the Hebrew Bible of Ruth. Ruth is a is a Moabite, and Moabites are pagan but Ruth is is an ancestor of Jesus. And she chooses to convert to Judaism because she marries a Jew. But then when her husband dies and she doesn't have children, her mother-in-law, Naomi, says, go back to your people, go back to your family, go back to your gods. And so it's a very affirming, pluralistic, like, yeah, go back to your life. Your life is fine where you come from. And she won't. She won't leave her mother-in-law. And she winds up, remarrying a distant cousin of her husband boaz now boaz is a very successful wealthy man who has never married and there's something called leverant marriage in the bible where if your husband dies and you're childless, you are entitled to marry the next male relative the next of kin who is unmarried and then you get together and then your first child is your dead first husband's child that it's it's a surrogacy situation oh well there is a cousin before Boaz, that she should marry, but she doesn't want to marry him. She wants to marry Boaz, a more distant cousin. Why? And Boaz is successful, older, has never married. Why? When your whole legacy depends on having both like property and children, he doesn't have a wife, he doesn't have children, but he is very successful. She wants him, and he has never married anyone, but he agrees to marry her. Why does this unmarried, successful man Who doesn't have to marry her, who's never made anyone else agree to marry her. Well, gay people see right through
0: this. (laughs)
1: Gay people see what's going on. If Boaz ain't, I ain't, right? Like he is willing to marry someone for a reason other than romance. And so, and she says, okay, yeah, now I do want to marry you, but it's a package deal. You have to take my mother in line too. Now, who is carrying along their ex-mother-in-law into a new marriage? <laughs> and so the whole implication is that perhaps Ruth has feelings for Naomi beyond just obligation. Yeah. And perhaps Boaz is of a certain orientation that he gets it. And they form this alternative family. And in fact, when Ruth has a child, Naomi sort of raises it. And they call Ruth's child Naomi's child. Hmm. Four chapters of the book of Ruth. It's easy to read. Um, and it's a fascinating story, but when you read it with queer eyes, you see things that most people don't see. And in fact, whether thou goest, I will go, your people with my people, your God with my God, that is said in heterosexual wedding ceremonies comes right from the book of Ruth, and it's one woman speaking to another. So this lifelong vow of fidelity is between women, and it is carried out. Ruth will only marry someone who will allow her to bring this other woman into the situation. She and this other woman co-parent their child. The guy who marries her someone who's never married before. I mean, it is, this is a queer family. Uh, so so anyway, I tell the story. And this is back in the 90s in a, in a small Texas church. I think I'm doing great. I think I'm setting people free. I'm yeah. empowering people. I'm like, you know,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. Meanwhile, it is technically her mother-in-law. That's family. And that triggered some incest memories for someone.
0: Oh, dear.
1: And uh, I it never... It, to my knowledge, that never happened before. And to my knowledge, it's never happened since. And I didn't expect it then. I'm offering, I think, a liberative take on things. But this person, it really brought up traumatic things for her. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it was a grandmother or a sister or, a, you know, I, I don't know who. An auntie or maybe an uncle or a brother. I don't know who. But th- this someone was in love with a family member really freaked her out. And uh, so, yeah, that was an unintentional triggering that... Uh, I was so sorry about, and yeah. I was very young. Of course, I still tell the story like I just told it now. But if someone came to me with issues about it, I think I would respond better than I did then. But yeah, that's what I'm saying about the overlapping traumas.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I I bet there are new expressions of that because you never know somebody's background. You know, everybody has had completely unique experiences, and so you can't probably anticipate every single thing that is potentially going to be triggering to someone. Right. So when you have new people coming to the church who are maybe coming from more high control religious groups, do you find that it's difficult to sort of help them get out of that rigid way of thinking?
1: Uh, I I don't want to be unkind. I I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be mean-spirited at all. And so just, you know, so hear that. Like, if I sound that way, it's it's just because I can't figure out a better way to do it. Yeah. There are two sort of high control environments people come from. Uh, Sort of Roman Catholicism is one. And evangelicalism is another. Mm -hmm. I found the evangelicals to be a bit kinder and more flexible. Interesting. Because even though I think they have an almost idolatrous relationship with scripture, they do have a high value for scripture. And if you can show them something in scripture, even a, a different way, but it is scriptural, then they have to consider it. And sometimes that's enough for them to, to open some space. Whereas Roman Catholicism, there are rules, there's dogma, there's the magisterium, and it's very hard for a lot of Roman Catholics to break out of that. So I have found, and I was surprised to learn this, but actually evangelicals, or people who come from that background, if you can show that, like if I told them that Ruth story, They're like, well, that's the Bible. That is the story. And now they have to give it a minute. They may not come to my same conclusion, but they can't dismiss it out of hand because of their weird, almost idolatrous relationship with the Bible. And I showed them something in the Bible. So they have to give it a minute in ways that Roman Catholics don't necessarily. So uh, I think I have more success with sort of opening minds and hearts of former evangelicals than of Roman Catholics.
0: Hmm. Well, that's, that's a uh, heartening <laughs> has not been my <laughs> experience, <laughs> but, but I do totally hear what you're saying about the idolatrous relationship with the Bible and certain interpretations of the Bible
1: at that. It is very, now when I, they, it frightens them someone, I let them know people wrote this and people are culturally informed and people mm-hmm. have their personal issues <laughs> and, you know, people don't know what they don't know and you know so this is a human document and these humans are talking about their exploration of things divine and sacred and that is empowering for us but these are people and people are flawed and uh, so that's when i have to really hold their hands through that and and catholics are a little more open to that hmm. but if i can show them before before i let them know the bible's not magic if i can show them that the bible does show some possibilities evangelicals do find that intriguing and chew on that a little bit
0: yeah okay
1: And because we're ecumenical, I do have both. I do have evangelicals, I do have Catholics, I do have Muslims, Jews and agnostics. Sometimes the atheists, they can be challenging because they like the community, they like the fun, they like the relationships of it, but they're like, why are you still talking about the Bible? Why are you still talking about God? The thing about fundamentalists and, well, theists in general, theists and atheists and agnostics all have the same definition of God. They have different relationships to that definition, but they all have the same definition. There is something out there. It has made the rules. It judges whether or not we are keeping the rules. And so it's there's this outside personality who's holding us accountable for keeping the rules that it created. It, it is the creator, it is the judge, and it's separate from us. It's outside of time and space. And all three of them accept that definition. Now, the theist says, I accept that, and I'm into it. I buy it. Mm-hmm. Hook, line, and sinker. The atheist said, I accept that definition, and I think it's bullshit. <laughs> and the agnostic says, I accept that definition, and I'm not really willing to place my bet one way or the other right now. But the agnostic lives as if he or she's an atheist. Mm. Like, the, the the agnostic, they say it could go either way, but they don't live as if they really think it could go in the direction. So those three have the same definition. They respond to that definition differently, but they all have to. Then there are pantheist and panentheist. Pan is all, so all, everything is God. And then the panentheist, panentheist, is everything is in God. The pantheist and the panentheist, and that's my side of of the theological world, there isn't a God. There is the God experience. There is the God presence. There is the God idea. There is the God power. And so really, reality is God. And how we navigate and explore reality, that's our religion. That's our spirituality. That's our theology there isn't anything a part of us. Whatever God is, we must be part of it. Either we are it, and the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, or we are in it. But whatever God is, whatever is divine, well, that must be ultimate reality. And I play a part in that. So I don't have a judgy God that I either believe in or reject. Hmm. I have the experience of life, and for me, that is divine. And so not only am I trying to get evangelicals not to worship the Bible, and Catholics not to worship tradition. But I'm trying to get all these theists to understand that even God itself might be a different concept than you've considered so far. That maybe there's not Santa God, and maybe there's not the Marquis de God. Maybe God is, as Paul Tillich, a great Protestant theologian in the 20th century said, God is the ground of being. Mm. It's pure being, being itself, consciousness itself, life itself. Mm. And I'm not an atheist, but I am a non-theist because what is divine for me isn't apart from me somewhere else. So I've got a lot, I'm spinning a lot of plates in my world. Mm-hmm. And that I had any success at all, it's kind of a miracle.
0: <laughs> well, there are uh, there are so many elements of Christianity, you know, sort of mainstream Christianity that absolutely seem to forbid that <laughs> worldview that you just expressed. <laughs>
1: And yet, when Jesus says it, when Jesus says, I am the Father, I am one, they buy it. True. But how is he able to say that? Because it's true for all of us. Hmm. I am one with whatever is. I am an expression of whatever is. So in that way, Jesus becomes not an exception, but the example of what is true for all of us. And now I love Jesus. Oh, as an example, as a model, as something to aspire to. And I believe he did exist. But even if it was just a character. The Jesus we've inherited is highly fictionalized. It's kind of a character. But in any case, this Jesus that I've inherited is now a model of people living so fully into their humanity that they express divinity. Now I'm in. This is something I can buy, and this is something I can sell. This is very different than there's a man-god out of a long history of man and woman gods. There's a man-god, but he's the real one. And if you worship him, then you're in the club, and everyone else is hosed, and somehow that's good news. Like, of course, empathic people, kind people, compassionate people, they don't want that. Like, they're not buying into that. And even just super reasonable people. That doesn't even make sense. Yeah. But if Jesus, fictional or historic, doesn't even matter, as a symbol, as an archetype of what is possible, that we can live so lovingly and so compassionately and so focused on justice that we can save the world one person at a time, not from some afterlife trauma, but from, from healing ourselves from this life's traumas. Now I'm on board and that's why I do what I do. I have no idea what happens when I die. I, do, I spend not one minute thinking about it. I, I, I can't know. But I do know that kindness and compassion makes a difference right here and right now. And Jesus is the model I've inherited and have not rejected yet of what justice, love, and kindness and compassion looks like. Hmm. And so you can do that as a Muslim, as a Buddhist, as an atheist. And well, let us remember, till the day he died, Jesus was Jewish. And so If I'm a Christian following a non-Christian, then I can't have problems with non-Christians. Jesus was not a Christian. Just never was.
0: Yeah. So if you have, say somebody comes into your church and they say, you know, I've had a history of religious trauma, a lot of these, you know, old practices and, and the dogmatic beliefs are very triggering. What kind of spiritual practices would you steer them towards that might sort of help them reconnect to that side.
1: We teach meditation, and there's really sort of four ways to pray. There is supplication, uh, or I guess you could say petition, you know, which is just wishing that my stuff gets better. Mm-hmm. And then there is when, when you pray for other people, you know, uh, intercession, which is when you're wishing that their stuff gets better. And then there is adoration, which is just awe. There's just you know I just I'm so impressed with this moment the sunrise or the sunset or the the love I'm receiving. I remember about a year before my dearest friend died, she was in the hospital going in for some surgery, and her family and friends were around, and she just breaks into tears. I'm like, oh my god, what's wrong? And she, I just feel so loved. <laughs> you know, I just feel so loved, and so these moments of awe where it's just like it's just so good. I, I I can only just sit here and just breathe it in, and then there and then there's contemplation where we understand ourselves to be one with whatever it is, an expression of whatever it is, hmm. that if God is the ocean, I'm a wave in that ocean. And so contemplation is where you experience yourself or, or contemplate the possibility of whatever is real, I'm part of that. Whatever is really real, whatever is divine, I am somehow part of that. So this is contemplation. And we teach the contemplative form of prayer. Of course, you're going to wish for your friends to do well. You're going to wish when you're having a hard time that it gets better. You know, when the family's around you before you go into surgery, you're going to break down tears. Oh, I feel so loved. All of that's great. But what we really focus on mostly is contemplating that you are part of whatever it is that's divine. We want you to get to where Jesus seems to have been, where you can say, I and whatever is real are one. I'm an experience of that. I'm an expression of that. And so by contemplation, by meditation, by contemplating oneness with the source and substance of all that is there's no guilt in that there's no shame there's no fear you can't get it wrong you're not asking for anything like it's just experiencing love and wholeness and beauty and life itself and so that is i think the main practice we can offer is the prayer of contemplation because i think that's what heals all that other stuff mm. yeah the god i have to please the god i have to uh, be scared of the god who has little rules i have to, i have to you know keep or whatever that's never going to bring peace or joy. In fact, that adds to trauma. But the God that is the air I breathe, God that is the energy in the cells of my body, God that is the breath of the planet that sustains me. And I'm part of all that. That is a very that's a very empowering experience. It's it's very different. It's very non-theistic, but very holistic sort of thing. We also, there's an old evangelical hymn, just as I am. It's terrible theology and yet well known. So we have taken that tune and I've rewritten all the words. And so we sing that hymn so that it feels familiar, but you are never articulating anything damaging. And so the name of the hymn for us is Light of God in Me. And so just as I am, I'm meant to be, instead of just as I am, without one plea, it's just as I am, I'm meant to be. And instead of Lamb of God, it's Light of God in me. And uh, so we do that. We'll take familiar tunes, but rewrite the words, Or we will sing secular songs Hmm. that have inspirational messages. We will sing, bless you for the good that's in you. It's an old uh, Mel Torme song. (laughs) So we we do that sort of thing where we will either change words or we will use secular images just to bring joy and and uplift or whatever so that it feels like church, but it doesn't feel like scary church. Yeah. We have communion. We're Eucharistic. We offer communion every week. But part of the invitation to communion is no matter who you are, And no matter what your beliefs or doubts may be, you're welcome to participate in this feast of unconditional love. We don't even tell you what communion has to mean. This is a thing we do. You define what it means and you define if it's even useful to you. You can set it out. We don't care.
0: I love that.
1: The same with baptism. We say if you want to be immersed in the life of this community, you're already baptized. If you want to celebrate that with a water ritual, we're happy to accommodate. But you don't, the water's not magic. Hmm. The bread's not magic. The wine's not magic. It's all optional. If it makes you feel good, have some. If not, set it out and just sing uh, Lean on Me, because that's one of our songs. So just sing a Bill Withers song or come up and take the bread. We don't care. We just have a lot of rules. We're sort of the Burger King of religion, you know. Have it your way. <laughs> yeah. And we don't use sin language. We don't use forgiveness language. We don't use atonement theology. In fact, there is a Presbyterian lay theologian, Dolores Williams. In fact, she's practically the inventor of womanist theology. And I've quoted her a million times in class and pulpit. Dolores Williams says, there is nothing of God in the blood of the cross. Mm. We talk about crucifixion as evil. It's torture. It's it's control. It's not something Jesus volunteered for. It's not something God demanded. It is execution by torture. We don't have atonement theology. We don't use blood language at communion. Mm -hmm. We just take all of the scary and violent and mean and exclusive things out. And, yeah, one of the criticisms is, well, then are you really still Christian? Well, if Christian means mean, then no. (laughs) But if Christian can mean more than that, then I think so. And I really am not that invested one way or the other. I'm much more interested in sort of faithfully forming a community around the Jesus ideal than in being Christian or Catholic or Protestant. I mean, that's, I don't care about any of that. I want people to have a safe place to have a spiritual search. For me, God is much more the search for God than what you find. Because whatever you find is what's comfortable for you in a moment. And there's something beyond that. So I'm not even very excited about what you find. I'm super excited about the search. And we want to provide a safe place for the search.
0: Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you do that by, like you said, leaving out the elements that are exclusive or shaming or violent. You mentioned, though, something caught my attention that you said you we don't we don't preach forgiveness. Tell me about that.
1: The theistic God has a lot of rules. And if you break those rules, then you have to do something to get that God to give you a pass. But if you're non-theistic, if you have a pan God, I'm in God, or a pantheist God, everything is God, well then who, who's doing the forgiving? And in your living and in your trying things, if you failed at this, if you made a mistake at that, is that a sin against? a deity or is that just life, hmm. you know? And so, yeah, if you've done something that offends your own sense of morality, then yeah, please try to make amends, try to, you know, try to make it right. But there isn't this outside judge in the theology that we present. There isn't this outside judge saying, oh, you told a little white line. Oh, you thumbed through some porn. Oh, you stole a pen from the office. So, you know, that's three demerits or another year in purgatory. Or, like that's just, that is also silly to us. Be your best self. When you fall short of that, acknowledge that within yourself and do better. But there's no scorekeeper. Mm. We want for our own sake and for the sake of our world to be the best versions of ourselves. And that's what the spiritual search is about, is becoming better versions of ourselves. But there's no scorekeeper. There's no failure. I grew up in the Bible. And so we used to say, you know, you wouldn't see people in church forever. And then when they're older, you know, suddenly they're in church again. And we'd say, oh, they're studying up for the final. But there's no final to study for. There's no, you know, passing. Life is to be lived, and living involves mistakes. And so we're, guilt is useless. If you do something really, really horrendous, you've done that against other people, not against God. Okay. And you may have to be held accountable for that. You may have to spend some time incarcerated or whatever. You may have to do some community service. You may need some therapy. You may need to pay some fines. You may have to make amends for how you have hurt other people, but it's about people. Whatever God is just is hurting with you.
0: Okay. Divine forgiveness is what you don't preach, but interpersonal forgiveness, that's different. Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: Oh, 100%. In fact, there were some things in my childhood that I thought were unforgivable. Hmm. And as long as I thought they were unforgivable, I continued to be miserable. My healing was tied to my being able to forgive. Now, you can't tell me when to do that. Yeah. And my and my forgiveness starts with being willing to be willing to forgive. It's a process. And it's on no one else's timetable. But it, just this one day when I realized that the people who hurt me in my childhood were hurt in their childhood. They were passing on the cycle of violence and trauma. They were doing what they knew. They probably had some regrets about it. They survived it. I survived it. You're never going to get a better past. Like, eventually, I can forgive and let go without approving of it but also I have to be chained to something that I can never change. And that's when I started being able to see them with some grace. That doesn't mean I have to sit down to dinner with them, but I can see them with some grace. I can let them go. And that's when I begin to heal and have less fear and less pain. So, Oh yeah, I'm a big fan of forgiveness, but I just don't think I don't think God needs to forgive us. Cause I don't think God's mad at us about anything.
0: Hmm. I feel like what you were describing just now of like people who abuse you, you know, you can forgive them by having empathy for where they came from, and for what they've been through. And I feel like if me, a human, can have that kind of empathy for another person, surely God, whatever it is, is capable of greater empathy even than me.
1: I came out to my grandmother when I was 19. And in the 80s, I was young. Now I feel like I came out way late. <laughs> but in the 80s, in the eighties, I was young. So I gave her some brochures, and like her P flag or whatever. And uh, here's my story. Love you. Good night. And I went to bed and she woke me up very early the next morning. And she said, if I've ever said anything that hurt you, I'm so sorry. Hmm. And I told people ever thereafter, if God's not as good as my grandmother, if God's not as loving and accepting and unconditional as my grandmother, then I don't need God. I'll just have grandma. You know, that God has to be as good as my grandma or God's not God enough. Yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. If if grandma can say, oh, I've probably said some really homophobic, terrible things. I didn't know. I would never do anything to hurt you. So please forgive me. Yeah. If God's not as good as grandma, then what good is God?
0: Yeah. Hmm. Well, it is. It's really filling for my soul to talk to people like you who have such a different view of religion that isn't all about hierarchy and maintaining control and producing conformity. Because, you know, for a lot of the listeners on my podcast, that's what we grew up in. Is there any advice you would give to somebody who is wanting to hold on to their religious roots or just spirituality and any words of wisdom you could offer them?
1: Well, you know, the apostle Paul said, faith comes by hearing everything you believe about yourself. Someone told you first, and they probably said it over and over until you internalized it. And so I think one of the ways to combat if that message was negative is to say positive things to and about yourself over and over. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big believer of positive affirmations because the negative affirmations are what you internalize. And I've got this wonderful exercise that I've shown people where if you take a glass of soda, just a little cup of soda, and you start running a stream of water in it, it takes forever before that dark liquid becomes murky liquid and then sort of light gray liquid and then clear liquid. And so that cup of soda really is all the negative stuff that's been poured into us. And then one drop at a time, positive affirmation, positive image, positive self-talk, eventually you displace all that, but it takes a while and it starts with those first few drops. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that cup of dark, toxic soda with all the sugar or artificial sweetener or all that stuff that was poured into you, but you can't just pour it out. You can displace it. You have to displace it one drop at a time. And that's the positive affirmations and the positive self-talk and the contemplative prayer where I just sit in this presence of goodness and know myself to be part of it i I do want to um i mean i guess i told you some stories but there's there's this kid in dallas texas he was i mean i'm 56 years old he was probably almost 30 i think i was a kid but he never lived past that Uh, this was in the early 90s he was in the hospital age-related stuff he was dying too sick to live and too scared to die Hmm. And his Church of Christ, a very fundamentalist organization, his Church of Christ mother called me in because he was so terrified from the theology, from all that yucky diet soda she had poured into his cup. And she didn't know what to do about it. So she called me in. And uh, on his deathbed, I got to tell him, you know, your mother, so sad that you were so scared and so afraid. And she went to great lengths to find someone outside of her faith to come in and talk to you. She didn't want you to be alone. She didn't want you to be scared. Do you believe? that your mother loves you. And he's like, oh yeah, obviously. And so I quoted a a verse from the book of Isaiah that says, like a mother loves her child, so will I comfort you. And I said, so that's an image of God as a mother. I have to believe that God loves you as much as your mother does. And if that's true, mother God is never going to let you go. And he died that night. And I was so glad that the last religious words he ever heard was, your mother really loves you and God loves you just as much.
0: Yeah,
1: that's beautiful. And so that's that has happened so many times. Uh, a, a mother who lost her child to AIDS, and she had me do the funeral. She was part of a, a very fundamentalist denomination, and they wouldn't do it. And so I said, "Well, screw them. You can just, you know, we'll be your church. You know, we'll love you. We don't have to be with mean people." And she said, "Yeah, I do because my my husband was a pastor in this denomination, and he's dead, and so I get his pension." And I have to go to that church or they cut off the pension. Oh my goodness. She was forced to go to a church that would not bury her son because he was a gay man who died of AIDS. But that's why I do what I do. That's why I am militant about it. You don't have to buy a thing I say, but I am determined to offer a different narrative so you at least have the choice.
0: Hmm. How do you hear those stories day after day? And how do you go through that and not become? Bitter and just so angry.
1: You keep living. When I was younger, I was bitter and I was furious. I used to say, I want to sue. I would have these denominations I was min- mentioned by name. I want to sue this denomination. I want to sue yeah. that denomination because they are weapons of mass destruction. And, but, you know, we're all victims of the victims. I mean, there was this Moloch, I think his name was in, in the ancient world. And uh, Moloch was a, a deity that required the sacrifice of children. And can you even imagine the terror? And the hatred, like you're a mother, bring your child to the statue to be sacrificed to this God. Like, how did that theology get inside you and corrupt you so much that you thought that not only was that an option, but that was the right thing to do and the only thing to do? And so the mother giving her baby up to this God Moloch must have been so frightened and must have hated that bastard and still been so scared that she did it. Yeah. Moloch is the God of fundamentalism. And so these people who are victimizing gay youth, trans youth, women, people who enter into interfaith marriages, they're worshiping Moloch. They are so terrified that they will sacrifice their children because that is how afraid they are of this deity. That's the God of American exceptionalism. That is the God of of uncontrolled capitalism. That is the God of fundamentalism. And so these people are doing terrible things. They're not getting away unscathed. We're victims of victims. Now, I can't change their lives, but they're queer victims. I can try to love back into wholeness. I can only do what I can do. And then sometimes the, the families come along. They're like, oh my God. Like the Church of Christ mother said, I don't want my son to die afraid. And she just kept looking until she found someone who would come visit him and tell him something different than her church had told him his whole life. Hmm. And so I'm, I love it when the families come along, but my goal Mm. is to reach these, these queer and trans and, and questioning people. And we think because sometimes legislation gets better, although they're trying to take a lot of it back that it's over. It's not over. This pain goes back generations. And, uh, I, I no, I've got job security. I've got work to do is for, for every day that I want to do work. Yeah. Sadly.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately me too. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it so much. And the work you do is incredible. Uh, We try to end every episode with a story about church culture that's funny or ironic somehow. Do you have anything for us?
1: (laughs) I do, in fact. I'm sure you do. (laughs) Well, one thing is, uh, I guess it's almost a little plug, too, is that we say, because I wear robes. Uh My little collar, you know, looking a (laughs) little bit of a costume. It's the uniform, right? But a bit of a costume. And then on Sunday, I wear robes. Desmond's and Chausville and all this kind of stuff. And so I say that the Christian liturgy is the longest running drag show in history. (laughs) And it's true. Uh It's true. Right. Well, to make a little, to make it a little bit even more in your face because of this uh, drag queen story hour that's under attack and in the state of Tennessee, they're trying to make drag performance at all illegal. Yeah. Is this 2022 or 1950? I don't understand. So anyway, for Advent, I'm doing in drag, I'm doing in drag from November 30th, all throughout advent four weeks. Drag Queen Bible Story Hour, where I am teaching queer affirming stories from the Bible in drag. My drag persona is Drag Venus Scriptura, and <laughs> I'm doing it every Wednesday night in Advent. And so, yeah, Sunday morning, longest running drag show in history. But Wednesdays in Advent, we're giving you extra drag at the Sunshine Cathedral. And it's a bit of resistance, it's a bit of fun. It's for real, legit Bible study. Uh-huh. But there's something about the sedition of it all that I just love.
0: Yes. Hey, (laughs) throw in some mimosas and I'm there.
1: (laughs) Oh, it's the Drag Queen Story Hour for Advent. And then in January, it switches to Bible and beer. (laughs) So uh, yeah, so uh, not in drag anymore, but it'll be midweek Bible study with beer. So yeah, we're a hashtag different kind of church.
0: I love it. Yes, so yeah, the the church website is sunshinecathedral.org. Absolutely. Anything else you would like people to check out if they are interested?
1: I think if you go there, you'll you'll find about our performing arts series and our worship service, you'll see our newsletter and our about our global fellowship that you can join. I that's the gateway. Everything you can find at sunshinecathedral.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. But if you get to sometime get to Laurelwood, that's the gateway. You'll find out all about us.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Gerald Thank
1: you. This has been a joy.
0: All right. Have a good day.
1: You too. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me and Anna at empathyparadigm.com. Bye.